Our philosophy on how we want to help companies is we want to make the founders of these companies successful. And if we feel like we can make the founders successful, the business will be successful. Developer tools are really eating the entire enterprise market. So we think it's one of the largest opportunities in venture. At this point in time, the opportunity set is as compelling as I've seen as a venture capitalist in all the years I've been doing this. Hey everyone, my name's Tom Drummond. Welcome to Venture Confidential. This is a regular podcast featuring candid conversations with top VCs from Silicon Valley. On Venture Confidential, we dive into the fundraising landscape, offer insights on how VCs think about investment, and hear investors' perspectives on what great founders get right. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. If you're interested in learning more about Heavybit, being a guest on this show, or you have a VC-related question, email me at vc at heavybit.com. This week, I'm joined by Scott Rainey and Lenny Proust from Redpoint Ventures. We talk about Redpoint's investment philosophy, founders and investors changing expectations, and the current funding environment and the outlook for 2016. This week, I am very excited to have on the show Scott Rainey and Lenny Proust from Redpoint Ventures. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thrilled to be here, Tom. That's awesome. Well, Scott, why don't you kick us off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Redpoint? Uh, great. Yeah, thank you. I am a venture capitalist with Redpoint. I've been at Redpoint since the early 2000s and I've uh, spent quite a bit of time looking at a variety of opportunities and spaces within the enterprise landscape. I spend most of my time these days spending time on cloud, cloud infrastructure, and developer-oriented businesses. Lenny and I are both members of the Redpoint Ventures team, and Redpoint's an early-stage venture capital firm based here in California, and we currently are investing out of two funds, an early-stage venture fund and a, uh, an early-growth fund that focuses on companies that are a little bit farther along. Great, and, and Lenny, how long have you been with Redpoint? So I joined recently, uh, I joined about six months ago. Previously, I was at a fund out on the East Coast called RRE Ventures, where I was doing most of their enterprise and developer-focused investing, and I uh, found myself spending a good deal amount of time out here, and then uh, sparked up a conversation with these guys, and then said, why don't you just come out here and do what you've been doing, and thought it was a good fit. So I've been working with Scott on a lot of cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, developer tools type companies, and uh, it's been great. Awesome. And are you working on the on specifically on the early stage side or kind of mix of the growth and the early? I'm exclusively on the early stage team. So how big's the early stage fund, Scott? Early stage fund is 400 million, seed, series A, occasional series B. A growth fund, early early growth fund is a $400 million fund, and that is focused on the occasional Series B, Series C, or bootstrap-oriented companies. I work on both funds. Uh, most of us at the firm work on both funds, although in, in practice, it ends up that you know that we tend to orient ourselves around different stages. So. $400 million, is a, that's a pretty large fund for you know, making a lot of seed and, and, and kind of Series A investments. Typically, how much are you investing at, at, the, at the seed level or Series A? Yeah, well, let's start with the Series A. So, you know, there's the amount that we invest in upfront and the amount that we, we ultimately invest in the company. And I would say that typical Series A investment for us is somewhere in the four to seven million dollar range, probably initial dollars in. We ultimately are modeling probably ten to twelve million dollars, you know, but in the end, we're going to do uh, what's required to help support that company. And there really is no, this is, a, this is an average. I mean, the, you know, they can vary widely across deals. You know what I would tell you is that has trended up over time over the last few years, and that's um, a function of the environment that we're in. As folks can raise money at higher valuations, they tend to raise more money, and so the size of these rounds has, has gone up. So I think we feel like 400 is a is a perfect fit for us because it allows us to invest in companies early on, maybe put a couple million dollars to work in companies, um, but also affords us the opportunity to 
have enough diversity within the fund. Ultimately, you know, we target somewhere in the neighborhood about 35 investments per fund. And, you know, a $400 million fund allows us to do that. And so the Series Seed investments or the super early stage stuff, I mean, Lenny, how much are you kind of, what are this kind of average check size or, or you know, how much do you think about investing it in, in seed stage deals? Yeah, so I think we uh, as a firm sort of re-architected our strategy on the seed stage side a little bit, uh, you know, a little while ago to start writing bigger checks anywhere from the sort of 500000 to $1 million range and really taking a more active role in the companies. And we really treat the seed opportunities as venture checks and like to roll up our sleeves and really work with these companies with the intention that these companies are ultimately going to blossom into you know opportunities where we're going to write five to $7 million Series A check and sort of get started along that path with them. For a long time, over the last, I think, five, six, seven, eight years, the, the, the seed strategy for most firms is really about buying option value. Right, especially the larger venture firms, it was about putting a little bit of money to work in a bunch of companies and seeing what what really started to take hold and what was sprouting, and hoping that based on that small investment that you may have made, that you were in a better position to actually lead the the Series A financing of the company. You know, I think in retrospect, and Redpoint did not do a lot of that, but I think in retrospect, I think the venture industry realized that probably wasn't you know the right thing to do. It wasn't. Good for entrepreneurs because we really weren't adding a ton of value. If you're writing a you know small check, I think it's hard for for venture guys to be able to to um, justify spending a bunch of time. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, for us it was like it was, it was ultimately, and I say us, I, the venture industry more broadly, but I think for a lot of firms, were realizing that they were making these little checks, they weren't spending a lot of time, and I think in the end they were kind of frustrating the entrepreneurs who were feeling like they weren't getting a lot out of it, and so. I think we recognize that all the, all along. We were doing when I mean, we do typically eight to ten seeds a year. That's kind of right where we are now. I think the you know the 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 thing for us is that we want to make big commitments to these entrepreneurs, and our, I think our hope is that this is just the first step in a long term relationship. And by investing, you know, a reasonable chunk of money, but also a reasonable chunk of whatever round is they're raising. You know, it kind of elevates the expectations on both sides. Do you think that's kind of why a lot of? I mean, it sounds like a lot of VCs are kind of cutting back from their seed investment deals. Do you think that's returns aren't there? They're just. I think I think everyone's kind of trending towards a strategy that's more consistent with the way that we've approached it for some time. I think that they're realizing you know forty to fifty investments a year, which you know there are a couple firms that were doing that. In the end, it was actually just damaging their reputation. Uh, you know, I think they 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 couldn't possibly add value to forty to fifty seeds per year. And entrepreneurs were were growing frustrated. In the end, you know, the entrepreneurs had to ask themselves, was this is this in my best interest? Having one of those venture firms on my cap table, if they're not spending a lot of time, what is that? I'm giving them option value, right? Yeah. What am I getting in return? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it was one of those things that I think mutually the entrepreneurs and the and the venture community kind of realized in the end that's probably not the the right approach. And if you're gonna take money from a venture firm as part of a C financing, it should be a bigger commitment. Yeah. I mean, you guys spend a lot of time doing workshops, office hours, those kinds of things with portfolio. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think that the you know what we've discovered over time is that there's only so much you can cover in a board meeting, right? And it's only so much you can cover in the one-on-one conversations. What we like to do is to create ongoing dialogues with our entrepreneurs. We want to make sure that we're having uh, regular interactions with them, and so you know the idea of this kind of concept of the brown bag lunch, right? Where we get together and we aren't talking about the issues and challenges that a particular entrepreneur is facing building their company, but maybe take a step back and think more globally about the kinds of challenges that that fellow entrepreneurs are having and the kinds of things that are likely to emerge as challenges, or frankly, where the opportunities might be. And so we've been hosting a variety of things. I mean, SA, uh, in the SaaS space, Tomas Tungas is one of our partners who's you know one of the most 
prominent bloggers in the space is uh, posting regular office hours for entrepreneurs in the in the in the cloud space. Uh, Lenny and I are running tech talks for portfolio companies where we bring our portfolio together and uh, we'll bring, for instance, kind of cutting edge, bleeding edge, open source projects and leaders in front of them to actually talk about what's on the horizon. We have regular events around talent that our talent head, Amy Knapp, will run where she'll bring the portfolio together and talk about some of the issues and challenges associated with hiring and recruiting. So I mean, those are a handful of examples of a, a variety of things we do, but I think it's Again, it's it's a lot of fun to actually think about how we can change the the way that we are interacting, communicating with our with our entrepreneurs. You talked about, I mean, you talk a lot about kind of adding value. I mean, what are some of the things that Redpoint like focuses on? Do you have a big operational staff as well as an investing staff? I mean, what are the things that you really think bring to the table? Oh, we have invested in, uh, I guess, what some venture funds would call a platform. We've got a head of marketing, head of talent, director of events. Um, and I think that's sort of table stakes um, at the area that we sort of that we, that we compete at today. You know, as far as what we bring to the table, I think, like I said, we like to really get involved with our companies and try to impart whatever learnings that we've had along the way. And that could be, you know, sitting down and you know doing whiteboard sessions on go to market. Uh, could be introducing them to the people in our network that we think bring a lot of value to the table. Uh, that have lived through these problems, as well as customer intros. So maybe I'd take a step back and say our philosophy. On how we want to help companies is we want to make the founders of these companies successful, and if we feel like we can make the founders successful, the business will be successful. And so, what that doesn't mean is that we want to offload a bunch of work for them and do it for them. I think what it means is we want to arm them to to do the things that we think are required to be successful better. And there's a handful of things. There's you know there's talent. Clearly, identifying and recruiting and retaining talent is a core function for every startup out there, right? And so. Rather than outsourcing a bunch of those functions for our, for our companies, because the reality is there's a bunch of talented recruiters out there, what we've done is hired Amy Knapp as our head of talent, and Amy's job is to help the founders and the executive management teams do a better job of you know identifying, recruiting, and retraining talent. And she does that in a variety of different ways, but spends a lot of hands-on times with our companies, helping them build the recruiting pipelines and to think about how to do that at a high level. And so we've done that similarly with uh, the marketing function as well. I think a lot of the way though that this, the, a lot of the value that we bring to the table is going to come through the years and years and years of institutional experience that we have and helping guide hundreds of companies through the growth phase from you know, an idea to you know, hopefully what is a very, very successful and, and scaling business. And you know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge. We take a team-based approach to investing where you know, we've oriented ourselves around uh, these uh, consumer team and an enterprise team internally, and we really do like to to have those teams manage the investments that we make because we feel like the more people we have around the table, the more value that we ultimately will be able to will be able to provide. So, I think there's a lot of a lot of things that we do. You know, in terms of the tactics, we don't need to get into that. I think it's probably probably pretty obvious. But I think the role, the expectations of what venture firms. Provide has changed quite a bit, and um, I think it's all for the better. And uh, you know, we're excited to be able to offer these platform services to our to our companies. Investing across you know early stage seed investments all the way through to kind of Series A and Series B. I mean, you see a lot of different types of deals, even within you know the enterprise space. I mean, are there different things that you're looking for at different stages of investment? Yeah, I mean, I think at least me personally, I sort of a triangular around product, market, and team, and more importantly, is sort of the alignment within those three. Right, you sort of think about you talk about product market fit. 
Uh, you talk about sort of founder market fit and founder product fit, and ideally you want, you know, really passionate entrepreneurs who are solving a problem that they know sort of inherently or innately, and have the capabilities to go out and sort of deliver, bring to market a really compelling solution. And I think that sort of transcends, that cuts across stage. But you know, given if you're investing in an earlier stage, you just don't have a lot of data, and so you tend to weight those three things a little bit differently and probably skew a little bit more towards the individual that you're backing uh, and him or her operating in a really compelling market. Obviously, as the company begins to execute, begins to bring product to market, starts to scale, you've got some metrics that you can sort of zero in on and really sort of quantify objectively how that company's doing. And that tends to be a little bit more of the, the game in, a, in later stage in growth investing. There are a lot of SaaS metrics that, that you know people understand well, you know CAC and LTV and things like that. Given the space you guys look at, enterprise software developer tools, are there other metrics that you think are particularly interesting? You know, either at an early stage or a you know Series A stage investment. I think that every deal, every situation is different, and I think that the philosophy that we have as a firm is that we don't want to apply one universal set of rules or metrics to the investments that we're considering. Because if we do that, then we're gonna you know we're gonna make Foolish mistakes. And I think in the end, the most important thing that we can do as investors is, you know, to kind of lock into the three things that Lenny said: investing in great people, building disruptive technology, and large markets. We want to be a part of industry-defining companies, and so sometimes that comes in shapes and sizes that are really difficult to measure in ways that, you know, might just pop out in a, in a metric. Yeah, but clearly when we're looking at, for instance, developer-oriented businesses, you know, I think our philosophy on those companies is first and foremost winning over the hearts and minds of developers. And so we really like to believe that and so doing your building a large community around your product. And so we're going to measure things like the size of that developer community and that engagement. And that could be in some ways looks a lot like what a consumer deal might look like. It might look a lot like what a social network company looks like in the early days when you're measuring monthly active users, right? We value that highly because we know that once you have that, then you know there, it makes it that much easier for you to think about how you ultimately build a business and build a business in a way that can be measured by some of the metrics that you laid out. It's kind of hard to measure developer love and attention. Are there other non-standard metrics? I mean, do you look at GitHub stars and you know number of people you know building something with a tool? Well, sure. I, I mean, I think you try to you know you sort of focus on a couple of variables and sort of hope that they lead you to you know a version of the truth. I think you know looking at GitHub stars, GitHub forks is a step in the right direction. Looking at chatter on Twitter, looking at chatter on Stack Overflow, I think these are all measurable indications of froth or excitement about a product or a service. And they certainly help, but nothing really beats going out and talking to users, talking to customers. Right? When we hear our portfolio companies talking about or getting excited about some of these tools, I think that serves as the best sort of um, proof in the pudding. Yeah. For a founder coming and talking to Redpoint, like what's a kind of standard diligence process look like? I mean, if they get in touch with Lenny or get in touch with you, Scott, how can they expect the, the conversations to go? Very pleasantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, there's really no uniform way of approaching this, but I would say that you know, for, if you're a seed stage company, our attitude is that individuals can ultimately make those decisions, so we don't run you through a full process and we can move very quickly. And then it's, you know, just making sure that we feel like we're, you know, we found something where we feel like there's a good match in both in both directions. You know, for Series A investments, it's you know our diligence really orients a lot around team and team diligence, and it'll orient a lot around product and technology. And the market typically we're investing in companies that are building or creating markets, and so there's not a lot of analysis you can do there. And so that a lot of times is more of a subjective kind of gut feeling. As you progress and you turn from an early stage business into Series B or into an early growth, then obviously we spend more time looking at the the data that you're generating the 
the traction that you're getting, the uh, both in terms of maybe users, but also in terms of uh, sales. And so, the farther you go, the more we look, for, we more data we will look for, and the more time we'll spend digging into that data. And the end, you know, what we're trying to do is assess the risk reward. And you know, what we like to believe always is that, uh, particularly in the early days, we're taking a lot of risk, hopefully a lot of reward. On the on the the, the spectrum of growth investors, we still take a lot of risk because we're going earlier than most, but. You know, we would like to believe that some of the risk has been wrung out of the equation because we're obviously paying higher prices, and there's going to be smaller reward. Yeah. So you mentioned finding companies or finding founders that are going after big markets. It's kind of one of the criticisms of the developer tools or the you know developer ecosystem is that it's not a big enough market or the developers don't pay. I mean, how do you think about you know making investments in that space? You've obviously been long term. Developer tools and developer ecosystem investors, right? I mean, going we would over. like we would like to believe we like everyone out there, all the other investors, to believe that that is still the case, <laughs> uh, because I think for a long period of time that was true, and it was also it was a it was also a function of the way in which those products were being delivered and, and built um, and sold. You know, it is our belief that that the markets that we're addressing now are very very significant in size, and we've been fortunate enough to be a part of a handful of companies that are building really big scalable businesses. Leveraging developers, but the way that we look at it is, you can either build tools for developers or you can build tools that are sold through developers. And we spent a little bit of time talking about this um, on Memory Leak. But there's money to be made by accessing developer budgets. There's also money to be made by by leveraging the fact that developers are increasingly becoming power brokers within organizations and are making decisions which have ramifications that kind of go all the way up to. The senior levels of companies, and you know, companies like Twilio and Stripe are great examples of that. You know, they're not their budgets don't come from the developers; they come from the the business owners. And so, we're accessing budgets that that traditionally would not have been accessible if you were leveraging developers to go to market, but today they are. And you know, we think that that trend is. We still think we're we're in the early stage of that trend, and it's likely to play out and become more and more important over time. So. And I'd say part of that notion that you can't make money selling to developers or developer tools is sort of a smaller market is, is really a taxonomy problem that's that I think changing pretty rapidly. I think you know as as more of the, our world gets instantiated in, in digital bits and ones and zeros, everything fundamentally touches a developer in one way, shape, or form. And so whether it's infrastructure, so you know now servers are basically developer products, right? Whether it's uh, Know, any sort of business, uh, if whether it's analytics or whether it's any sort of productivity software, it's becoming again via APIs and SDKs instantiated in bits and ultimately touches the developers generally first. To us, developer tools are really sort of eating the entire enterprise market. So we think it's one of the largest opportunities in venture. I think you know we could talk about these APIs that are playing that, but but right now there's a the big phenomenon happening in the way in which applications are being built and operated and run and. Driven by things like um, containers and microservices, and these are all phenomenon that'll be driven by developers. That ultimately having massive implications in terms of the way that enterprise software is going to that's it, that it's going to be constructed. And uh, I think that is a you know it's a great example of the power of the developer. And the reality is, the developers are unleashing that trend, but the budgets are going to be coming from a whole variety of different sources. And so. We talk about developers. We don't just want to build businesses that sell to developers. We want to build businesses that enable developers to empower them and to, and to help advance their organizations in ways that can be really powerful for the for their companies. And are there particular kind of you know segments or, or parts of the developer ecosystem, the enterprise software market that you think are particularly interesting right now? Yeah, you know, I, I think just to take a step back, I think we broadly lump 
developer tools into sort of four larger categories. One's sort of around developer productivity, and that's you know generally writing code, collaborating around code. You know, we talk about sort of application lifecycle tools, so tools that help you get, literally get code from your terminal developer's terminal into production, and then infrastructure as code. So the you know the emulated compute network and storage that you see on services like AWS, Heroku, and then obviously services as code, which are basically sort of end-to-end products delivered via APIs, so Twilio, Stripe, two Redpoint examples. You know, and within there, there's there's real disruption happening. I think in in all four of those verticals. Um, obviously, I think you know. We were remiss not to talk about some of the trends and across sort of the way applications are being built and deployed. And you know, today we're seeing applications sort of a, a whole remake of application architectures for from these traditional monolithic apps deployed on single servers to these you know distributed systems that are being deployed across data centers across span multiple regions, and that's having a fundamental impact on the entire tool chain that's used to build, manage, and deploy, monitor these applications. And so, you know, when we're looking at opportunities, we sort of we we see infrastructure as beholden to the application, and so every fundamentally every part of the stack is being remade to support these decentralized apps. So we're seeing it in new paradigms in persistence, in storage, in monitoring. Um, these are all areas that we're really excited about. Yeah, and these are multi-billion-dollar markets, which is what's you know really exciting about what's happening. And I think you know we're we're going to look back five, six, seven years from now, and we're going to realize that. The, the time we're in now has been a pretty meaningful, fundamental transformation on the way that software is built. And it's going to be, in large part, driven by the, the approach that developers are taking, actually, how they want to build software. I mean, we've seen some extremely large financings for companies in this space, right? I mean, kind of Docker, most, probably most notably, right? You know, obviously, having a large market is a key rationale for raising a lot of money. But it seems like a lot of these markets are kind of winner-take-all markets, or they're they're markets where you know the lion's share will go to number one. Do you agree with that? And does that inform your investment hypothesis as well? I personally do agree with that. I don't I don't know about Lenny, but I think that if we we talked earlier about the dynamics around winning over uh, developer mindshare, and a lot of them are kind of reminiscent of what we see in kind of the consumer phenomenon out there. And in the end, you realize that. Those networks ultimately accrue to, to you know one or two uh, leading platforms, and I think that we're going to see the same thing in a lot of these develop-oriented platforms. You know, look, I think Docker, taking that one specifically, that's a company where you know what they've been able to do over the last couple of years is pretty extraordinary in terms of their winning over mindshare and actually transforming the way that people think about the portability of software. And I think that that valuation and the size of the investment was justified by the idea that. People believe that Docker's the next generation of virtualization. That they look at it and say this could be the next VMware. You know, we can get into this a little bit in some further conversations about the the challenges associated with trying to build something like a VMware in enterprise today. It's a lot harder than than uh, it's hard to do today. What I would say is I think that the enthusiasm around Docker I think is warranted because I think it speaks to the size of the disruptions that we're seeing and people. A lot of smart people believe that it. It could fundamentally disrupt something like a VMware. I think that you know, it's not often that we see those kind of tectonic shifts in the way that we're seeing uh, right now. So, and the one thing I would add is, you know, for companies like Docker, for Kubernetes, for Mesosphere, whoever, right? I think the the challenge is to platform and platform quickly and build sort of tentacles into the stack um, because the barriers to adoption, innovation, have been smashed. In a pretty dramatic way. So, you know, we also live in a world where it's sort of best tool for the best job, and it's a real meritocracy out there. So, you know, developers will flock to the tool that 
does a certain thing that makes their lives easier and does it in the most efficient, automated way a lot of times. So, you know, we've seen some leaders emerge, but in our minds, the winners in this, at least in this, you know, call it cloud native ecosystem, I think are very much still to be determined, which is exciting. Well, there's one, I mean, kind of very big winner at the moment in AWS, right? I mean, that's kind of the biggest platform, developer platform or, or you know, cloud infrastructure platform out there. Will they leave any air for the rest of us? Will there, is there room for for you know another AWS? Or how do you think about the the infrastructure market evolving given given how big they are already? You know, it's something that keeps me up awake at night a little bit, and I wonder, you know, what the future for the enterprise and infrastructure innovation cycle becomes with someone like this extracting or really accruing so much value so quickly. I tend to believe that these things are tend to be cyclical. And if you sort of follow the history of enterprise compute, you know, it sort of ebbs and flows between periods of you know, aggregation and disaggregation. And there's always some sort of change on the horizon that prompts you know, new winners and new sort of patterns of, of, uh, of, compute to emer- of, of computing to emerge. So you know, I think today <laughs> it seems like everything's sort of headed in the, in, in the direction of AWS and a world of three or four cloud vendors dominating everything. But, you know, I'm optimistic as an investor that we're gonna. There's gonna be some sort of paradigm or architectural shift that prompts some sort of. You know, this isn't to say that you know we're gonna start to see you know enterprises building giant data centers again, uh, proprietary data centers. But um, the minute we start saying this is sort of it, <laughs> is when things tend to change. So I'm hesitant to say that. I wrote a uh, blog post not that long ago saying that I think Amazon might be the most interesting enterprise software business in the world today. I mean, it's incredible what they've done and. In short order, and I think it speaks to the power and the potential of the cloud. I think obviously there's a number of people in the ecosystem that worry about the the power that they've had so far. They've wielded in a fairly benevolent way, where they've been aggressive in driving down prices and and the ecosystem, and they certainly have executed um, on a product roadmap that is you know pretty extraordinary and. Uh, and I think we're all uh, within the startup ecosystem benefiting from you know the the tremendous work that that the folks at AWS have done. You know, I do think over the long run though that that you know it's hard to imagine a world where all the compute and storage is sitting on top of one data center. And I think that there are companies like Microsoft and companies like Google and even companies like uh, Salesforce who look at this and say you know that is a this is a scary. Precedent, and as we kind of flash forward, if we aren't able to steer the ship in some interesting and meaningful way, that that those guys will accrue enough power that it actually could end up being something that is detrimental to the ecosystem. I think we're a long way from there, but I would also say that I think also the, the leadership changes we've seen in some of those companies and direction that we see uh, within uh, Microsoft and Google gives me hope that there is going to be a very competitive landscape here for infrastructure as a service going forward. I don't know exactly. What's gonna, how it's gonna play out? I don't know exactly what might change or tip the competitive balance in some way, but I, there are companies that are worth a whole bunch that have a lot of money that are looking at that and saying that is an area in which we must be a strong and viable competitor, if not leader. And uh, I think it's gonna, you know, I think all this is only good for all of us in the startup ecosystem. I, you know, um, so we'll see, we'll watch it and uh, keep a close eye on it. But uh, you know, I, one example I give on on Amazon, which is pretty amazing, is uh, you know I don't know how much you guys have looked into Lambda and what Lambda actually is is this idea of serverless compute. What's really amazing about that is you know the the creation of of Lambda works for certain workloads, not others, but basically it it completely undermines Amazon's own business model. So it's a product they've launched that essentially reduces the cost of running certain applications. 
by you know it's it cuts it it's order, it, at least it's, order it, it's it's about five percent right it costs about five percent and so you imagine a company that's a leader in a category that has a dominant market share that is you know pushing forward by all rights could just continue to do what they're doing but is launching something like lambda that would absolutely eat into their own business and I think it speaks to the kind of mindset they have what they really want to do is build disruptive technologies and they want to deliver experiences they think will be differentiated for developers and Believe me, Amazon's not without its issues and challenges. I think every developer out there that works with AWS could speak to that at length. But I, you know, I think in the end we have to look back and say this has been a, a phenomenal development for all of us as we try to build the next generation set of companies out there. So I mean, these big kind of platform providers, you know, phenomenal enablers of you know another generation or of a whole suite of developer products that are coming out. Do you think they are uh, going to make good exit opportunities as well for some of the portfolio companies? If past history is any indication of the future, I think infrastructure companies will be hard pressed to exit to the likes of Amazon and and Google, right? I think these guys view infrastructure and sort of their ability to create software and and you know rack servers to a certain degree as as a core competency. I think Microsoft has definitely shown a bit of an acquisitive streak, particularly in areas that are highly strategic, where they can you know tend to differentiate themselves from these other two competitors, right? They've they flirted with mesospheres, the, the rumor that's has been widely discussed. They've been very acquisitive in security. So I think you know they're they're more of a traditional large enterprise that I think views MA as a potential for sort of you know fueling long-term growth. But I think you, you see Amazon doing some tuck-ins, but you know, these are two of the best engineering Organizations in the world, and they generally, and probably correctly so, think if they could probably do it better than a whole lot of startups. I do think that that the likes of Google and Microsoft are going to look at companies that have managed to acquire a, a large developer community as a very attractive acquisition candidate. Um, they're playing catch up, and they're trying to build communities around their platforms. And to the extent they can accelerate that through the acquisition of of startups that have those communities, I think that they will absolutely embrace that. I mean, that's something they did with the Firebase acquisition, right? Yeah. You know, for yep. example. Yeah, and obviously, I think that's a great example, and um, I expect there'll there'll be a lot more. You know, the question is whether or not they're going to want to acquire those at the the point at which those guys are still in the process of building those communities before they've actually, you know, kind of nailed down their business models. Because once they've nailed down the business models, the value of these businesses go up significantly, and so. You know, I think that'll be one of those interesting dynamics for any entrepreneur that's building uh, businesses around a developer community. That transition from community to business model has always been, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, it's hard for any business, and in all likelihood, there's going to be a lot of acquisition candidates, uh, opportunities that will pop up for you. It makes it a very difficult decision. Uh, it's, and it's an interesting change to know. It sort of struck me that before, you know, companies were, you know, at least in the enterprise world, it's you know, you look at acquisitions were generally driven by some sort of strategic IP. And now it seems like, to Scott's point, that it's very much sort of developer evangelism, develop and these developer communities that are the most sort of strategic assets that startups in our in this space can can build and leverage. It's pretty hard to value any privately held company. I mean, how do you guys think about valuing some of the deals that you're looking at? Man, that is. I wish to tell you there was science behind it. There isn't. Um, you know what we do is there's a certain amount of ownership and there's a certain amount they want to raise, and you do the math and it pops out. But yeah. I think in the end, it's generally a process of it's an iterative process where you, as an investor, ultimately have to get comfortable with how big of a business you think can be built, and you kind of work back from there. Mm. And as an entrepreneur, you have to think about it in terms of the amount of money I need to get from here to there and how much dilution I'm willing to accept at you know the different stages and. You know, hopefully at some point those things converge. Are you worried about the current state of valuations? I mean, it seems like it's been a very 2015's been a very 
highly valued year or it's been a lot of very high valuations in 2015. Yeah, I'm I, you know, we've been concerned for a little while about valuations. I think that there's Here's what I would say. I, I think that at this point in time, the opportunity set is as compelling as I've seen as a venture capitalist in all the years I've been doing this. The opportunity to create really disruptive businesses and build big businesses—it's a phenomenal time. And uh, and you know we've walked through a handful of opportunities here, but there are plenty more. And so, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and optimism throughout the startup ecosystem and community here in Silicon Valley that. Hey, we can build really, really big companies. As a result, that ends up eventually translating into higher and higher valuations in these businesses. At some point, those valuations get beyond probably where they should be from a risk reward standpoint. And you know, I think Bill Gurley said it and said it well, which is that there, in cases, people have kind of dropped the risk premium, and essentially, we're not paying for risk. We're assuming flawless execution on on these companies. And so, I think we kind of got to that point. I would tell you that I feel like here we stand at the end of 2015 that things are changing and have been changing actually probably for four or five months. And I think the valuation environment is softening. It's starting at the late stage. And so some of the companies at the, the very late stage that were getting very large valuations and really hard to justify at some level because they're close to going public. And you look at the public comps and these guys were getting you know two to three to four times the multiples that the public comps are getting. And as these these companies that people invest in at high valuations are going public, realizing that that last round is underwater relative to the public valuation, of course, some point, you know, valuations will adjust, and that that has actually started. And so we're seeing we're seeing that, and I think it's in full swing at this point. It's probably not readily apparent to, to everyone yet, but I think it will become more apparent. And so I think that will ultimately kind of work its way down through most stages, and I think that we're probably going to see some rationalization of valuations. That having been said, I do believe that valuations, it still will be a great time for an entrepreneur to raise money. I think that the valuations we're going to see at the early stages are going to be very attractive. And I think that the opportunity to finance companies in the private market over a period of time to take on very ambitious projects, the, the math is still going to work out uh, and, and look very attractive. It's going to look very attractive to everybody. The one thing that could happen here if we do see an adjustment in the way in which companies are valued is just how much risk. Uh, investors are going to be willing to take, and you know, some of these projects that are burning a lot of money, some of the ones with very speculative business models that have raised money at very high valuations, you know, they could face some some challenges in, in, in an environment that starts to look for that risk premium once again. You know, along with valuations, do you think the kind of supply of capital has changed at, at, at different stages of the business? Is there less money kind of sloshing about at the Series Bs, the Series Cs? I mean, do you think the same thing is happening at the Series C as well? I think we're a wash in money right now. <laughs> I think we're still a wash in money and will be for a while. I think at the the seed level, there's plenty of seed capital that's available in Series A and Series B. There's plenty of capital available in later stages. There's lots of lots of capital. I would say that you know at the very late stages, some of the investors, those guys will move in and out of the private market because what they do is they look at the arbitrage between private and public, and they feel like they can put their money to work in the public markets and generate a better return. They will, and so. You know that you see that capital being a little bit more fluid at the late stages, but the reality is those you know all those companies at that stage, all the private companies could probably opt to go public if they were to so choose. So I think we're we have a lot of capital sloshing around, which is one of the reasons why I said that even as we see an adjustment in the way the companies are valued, we still believe that they're going to be valued very highly because there's a lot of capital, uh, and that I don't believe will change anytime soon. There's been a lot of money pumped into the venture ecosystem. Over the last four or five years, and it takes a long time for that money to kind of work itself out. 
so you know, good news. Entrepreneur, there's a lot of money available, and uh, and it should allow us as an industry to continue to kind of take on big, bold, ambitious bets. Yeah, I mean, I remember back from the the follow-on from the first bubble where people used to talk about the venture capital overhang and the number of you know massive funds that got raised all the way through despite there being like no really real place to invest it and it, and it seems from the from the statistics or from the um the NVCA stuff that I've read like the 20 2014 was like a the most amount of uh, money going into new VC funds for the last decade you know I think 2015 is going to be the same as well like, it always it always happens that that money moves in you know right as things get really exuberant and yeah, it takes a while for it to move out. Now, you know, in the scale of things, what happened in 2013, 2014, and 2015 is still very small relative to what happened in the late 90s. And so the, the size and scope of any kind of venture overhang is you know, not nearly what we maybe saw in the early 2000s. So I don't see it as a, as a, you know, as a kind of fundamental challenge to the asset class. But I do believe that there's going to be a lot of money out there, and we're still going to, as, as investors, we're still going to be competing in an environment where there's lots of capital flowing. Arguably, it's it's harder for institutional funds to make early stage bets because you're competing against investors with non-financial incentives. You, know, you have folks doing it for the love of entrepreneurship. You know, you have you know Twitter, Facebook, kind of millionaires or billionaires who are redeploying capital in and and really don't give too much of a concern about you know making a return on that initial investment i mean how do you think about competing against someone who you know maybe doesn't doesn't, doesn't have care about making money yeah yeah that makes it hard yeah. now i at the seed stage clearly we run into that from time to time where there are investors who come in with a different kind of return profile or threshold and also frankly different motivations like you said and in those situations and we can decide whether or not we think it's worth making that individual bet or not you know i think that the reality is that becomes less of a factor at Series A and, and later when we're talking about larger larger checks. The individual investors who can come in and distort particular financings in the way you, you described, those those folks tend to be very they tend to move in and out based on what's happening within the environment. And so at very frothy times they tend to be leaning forward. But you know, if there's any kind of pullback, they tend to to pull back very quickly. And so it's hard for us to strategize and plan around that because the reality is, over the course of our fund, I suspect that it, it's you know it's not something that is a consistent challenge or issue for us. So, and I guess you, you know, the goal is to be differentiated capital, as you were saying. Well, earlier. that's it exactly. I mean, the reality is that we're very rarely the highest offer on the deals in which we do. I mean, there are you know most entrepreneurs kinds of companies that we want to be investing in could raise money at. At very high valuations from individuals who, again, would think about things differently than we might. It's about a, it's a partnership, and it's about finding you know, a set of entrepreneurs who we really believe in, and for the entrepreneurs, it's about finding a set of people that they believe are going to be highly engaged and, and are going to be there to support their their company over the long term, not just that round of financing, but the next round and the round after that, and are also going to be dedicating serious and significant time. And uh, I think it's. Safe to say that as investors at Redpoint, we've been able to prove time and time again our ability to actually help and support our entrepreneurs. And, and as a result, we find in many of these financing discussions that it becomes less about valuation. I mean, certainly always a part of it, but yeah. the deciding factor often is really more about, well, do I believe that this person can change the trajectory of my business in a meaningful way? And we've talked about alignment within a company around market product and and team, but there's also investor alignment, and you know you want to find a partner that sees eye to eye with you on a, 
on the company you build. And you know, that's this is why you know we spend a lot of time getting going deep on particular sectors and really fleshing out our perspective, our point of view. And you know, I think there's there's something to be said about having some deep domain expertise where you're not just capital, where you could be sort of a, a, a real strategic partner for the for the entrepreneur. I, I would say one observation: the venture business has changed a bunch in terms of the expectations entrepreneurs have about. The, the people that invest in their business, and it mm-hmm. used to be a lot about, hey, you've you understand what it takes to actually grow business over time. Well, now entrepreneurs want that, but they also want folks who have a lot of specific domain knowledge and expertise. And you know, Redpoint, we are generalists across areas in which we invest, but we find ourselves and we gravitate more towards specific areas or ideas or themes that we're interested in, and really take a lot of spend a lot of time, energy, and money investing and in ensuring that we. We understand those industries that and those subsegments that we're interested in very, very well, and so that we can sit across the table from an entrepreneur, and they believe not only can we help them think about how to, you know, just entrepreneurship 101, but we can also help them very specifically with the kinds of day-to-day tactical issues they're going to have building a, a business in a particular space. So uh, you guys obviously spend a lot of time focused on developer tools and, and enterprise software. We're, we're excited to see that you you've actually launched a new kind of content or a new publication on the topic. Yeah, so uh, I guess what a month or two ago, we launched a new blog called Memory Leak, which is really dedicated to the business of developers. You know, I think as VCs, you know, we occupy a, a, an interesting place in the market where we're sort of part historian, part rational pragmatist, and part sort of you know dreamer. And so we've lived a lot of experiences, we've seen a lot of business models, we've seen a lot of successes and failures, and associated with you know launching businesses targeted at developers. And we also have a front row seat. To the cutting edge, the bleeding edge in what's happening in the stack, and so we thought a lot of these lessons should be, you know, sort of shared and, and explored. And Memory Leak is really targeted at developers or folks that are building tools and products for developers, and exploring, you know, sort of the tactics and strategies around that, around those businesses, and exploring themes around go-to-market, product, product management, and also highlighting some of the overarching trends we're seeing. Uh, you know, around containerization, around sort of APIs. That sounds good. And so, is it all uh, Redpoint content, or are you kind of getting contributors and people to syndicate into it as well? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Scott and I uh, produce a lot of the original content, but a lot of it is going to be interviews and inspired by conversations we've had. You know, one of what we just posted an interview a few weeks back uh, where we spoke with James Lindenbaum here. You know, we've got another one teed up where we spoke to Paul Bigar, the founder of. Circle CI, and you know, I think it's it'd be foolish of us not to talk to these guys who are really sort of luminaries and uh, in their in their respective fields. Yeah, I mean, we're excited to have an opportunity to start a dialogue with folks that are uh, building those types of businesses, and also talk directly to developers as we as we consider the the shifts that we talked about in the technology and the stack that's 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 evolving. And it's been a lot of fun so far, and we've gotten a lot of great feedback, and we look forward to you know again having this this dialogue, this ongoing dialogue. So. Hopefully everybody out there joins in. So where, where can we find it? Yeah, so the, the URL is memleak.io, and Scott and I link to stories from it all the time, so you can follow us on Twitter. I'm uh, at Lenny Pruse, L-E-N-N-Y-P-R-U-S-S. And I'm at S-R-A-N-E-Y. Cool. And is that the best way for folks to get in touch with you if they have a founder's got a hot new deal? Yeah, that'd be great. Hopefully exclusively us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> great, well, I think that's all we've got time for. But Lenny, Scott, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential, brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks from top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders. 